Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of digital audiobooks. Over at Audible, there are hundreds of thousands of titles available in every possible genre imaginable. And right now, you can get a free audiobook with a free 30-day trial by going to audibletrial.com slash other people. That's audibletrial.com slash O-T-H-E-R-P-E-O-P-L-E, audibletrial.com slash other people. You can uh, get an audiobook. That's a good thing. You can listen to the book. It's user-friendly. You can do uh, other things while also having a book read to you. Do you understand that scenario? audibletrial.com slash other people. These are audiobooks. You can listen to them. Go and get one. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Big, stupid, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is making it up as I go along. This is trying to capture some of your attention. How are you? I'm Brad Listy. It's nice to be with you. I have a great show for you today. My guest is Diane Cook. She has a debut story collection out there uh, from Harper. It's called Man v. Nature. Man v. Nature. It is generating critical acclaim. It is earning plaudits. And uh, I'm going to be talking with Diane momentarily, and you're going to get to hear that conversation. Uh, before we begin, I thought I would say a few words about the latest uh, literary media story of the week. I feel like we've been having a lot of these lately. Like scandalous literary essay or scandalous situation uh, unfolds online, goes viral. That doesn't always happen in the literary community, but lately... It seems it has been happening. This past week, uh, a young YA author named Kathleen Hale wrote an essay for The Guardian uh, about uh, how she stalked one of her Goodreads uh, reviewers who goes by the name of Blythe Harris and who is known uh, in the Goodreads community to be a troll. And, you know, I think it's we have to be careful about how we uh, categorize things because to call somebody a book reviewer or a book critic, that might be too generous for some of these people on Goodreads. These are like people who read books and then write what they think. Yeah, that's a form of book criticism. 
but I like to think of people who actually get designated as reviewers or as book critics uh, in a formal way. I like to think of them as, uh, you know, having some substance and having non-trollish tendencies, which is to say they don't personalize their reviews and, uh, you know, seek to destroy the actual author in addition to uh, saying, you know, negative things about their book, which, by the way, uh, is totally fair game. I'm not suggesting otherwise. If you read a book and you're a book critic or you're writing a book review and you really didn't like the book and you know why, uh, then write it down. That's the way it goes. And as authors, you need to be uh, accepting of that. But there's a difference between that and the kind of, uh, you know, ultra-nasty, mean-spirited, personal attacking that goes on uh, you know, in certain columns, certain reviews, certain websites, etc. So to give a summary for people who aren't aware of how this, you know, uh, what this story is, Kathleen Hale, the author got this negative, nasty, uh, feedback from Blythe Harris on Goodreads. Kathleen then became obsessed with Blythe and started kind of stalking her online, trying to figure out who she was. She ended up going to her house thinking she was going to knock on the door and confront this woman. She figured out that Blythe Harris was a pseudonym. She figured out who the actual person was and got the address, drove to the house, the whole thing. Didn't wind up knocking, but left a book on the front step, which was called like, what was it? It was like how to lead a happy life or something, which had some kind of passive aggressiveness in it. And then, uh, beyond that, she called this, she catfished this, uh, this, uh, Blythe Harris person, you know, like a reverse catfish. She figured out who the, you know, who she was. She figured out where she worked. She called her at work pretending to be somebody else. So there's a lot to it. There's a lot of twists and turns. And I understand the impulse. I understand Kathleen's impulse to want to humanize it meaning, uh, wanting to, to actually look this person in the eye and, and to say, you know, to say, Hey, I'm a human being. Who are you? Why are you doing this? Why are you behaving like this? I understand that impulse. I think it's a very human reaction to being trashed online in a really vicious way, but I don't think it's advisable, uh, as an artist and a quote unquote public figure to act on it. And yet it makes for a riveting essay. (laughs) You know, maybe that was subconsciously her idea the whole time. I'm going to, I'm going to actually act on this impulse that everybody who publishes something or everybody who's ever been criticized has, but doesn't actually act upon. It's kind of a wish fulfillment thing, but I don't think you should do it. You can't feed the trolls. It's like, it's like, uh, internet one Oh one. As difficult as, as it may be to resist, don't feed the trolls. That's what they want. They live on, they, that's what they live on. That's where they get their energy. That's what they're hoping for. And, you know, people who are trolls, people who, uh, you know, spew like hateful, uh, thoughts or, you know, feelings or whatever onto the, onto the uh, internet. Uh, these people are, are sad and pathetic and need help. I'm talking about the people who do it, uh, you know, it's like a pattern behavior. There's something wrong. These are people who are suffering and who don't know how to deal with it. 
and this and this is how they deal with it. So if there are any trolls listening, <laughs> I don't know what, you know, what else can you say? Don't feed the trolls. Don't stalk your trolls. Don't reverse catfish trolls. I sort of want to catfish uh, Kathleen Hale now. Just start some sort of weird cycle where I start catfishing her. You should all start catfishing one another. And it's not like the internet is where this kind of bad behavior uh was invented. It's just, it's just a a place where it it seems to flourish. People can be shitty with impunity. People can stalk one another. People can sleuth. People can do background checks on one another. It's a weird world. And it's an interesting story. So check it out for yourself. Google. You can read all about it. It's all over the web and there's been backlash both ways. It's, you know, it's the perfect viral controversy. And I suppose it's good for every, you know, all parties involved. I guess this is good for Kathleen Hale's profile. Any publicity is good publicity, right? That's the cynical uh, adage. And then Blythe Harris, I don't know. I guess maybe this makes her uh, reviews more widely read on Goodreads. Uh, Maybe. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Diane Cook. Her debut story collection, Man V Nature, is out there now from Harper. Uh, I had a great time talking with her, and I think you guys will enjoy hearing from her. Here she is. This is Diane Cook, and her story collection, once again, is called Man V Nature. I'm in my dining room slash kitchen in Oakland, California. All right. Oakland. How long have you been in Oakland? Uh, We moved here in April, so not that long. We're still pretty pretty much newcomers. So Brooklyn to San Francisco, essentially. That was the move. Yeah, we did that. We did that cross-country move as opposed to the other one. I feel like more often than not, it's the other way around for writers. It's like I was living in San Francisco... I, uh, I like, you know, I don't want to say outgrew, but I just sort of like got sick of San Francisco, wanted to go to Brooklyn and be a writer or whatever. But you did the opposite move. Like, were you over Brooklyn? Did it wear you out? <laughs> yeah. I, well, I personally was over Brooklyn. I've been over Brooklyn for quite some time uh, and kind of itching to leave. And my husband really loves it there. So we it just 
came about that he had got a good job offer out here and it, it didn't make sense to kind of keep struggling in New York. Um, so, so you triumphed. You won that battle. <laughs> I won it. It was it was pretty bad timing though because I just it was this was like the year my book is coming out. Right, <laughs> so finally right. after years of toiling away as a writer in New York, I finally made it. And then we left and then immediately. Like, That's sort of cool, though. It's kind of like a mic drop. Just like, fuck you. I'm published. See you later. <laughs> Do you have any sense of that? I mean, like, because, uh, you know, you live in Brooklyn and you're there for all those years. And, you you know, I'm presuming you're struggling at least on some level because anyone who tries to write a book struggles on some level. Yes. And, you, you know, you can't but help. You can't help but be reminded of everyone else's literary success when you're that close to the nexus of uh, American publishing. Uh, yeah. So, so, I mean, did you ever, did you struggle with jealousy? Did you struggle um, keeping like your self-esteem up, you know, <laughs> watching this? Like how aware of that stuff were you? How able were you to tune that stuff out? Um, I'm pretty good about tuning that stuff out. And I'm pretty good, or I made myself be really good about uh, not hating anyone or not like coveting what other people have. And I usually try and be like a champion, you know, like, oh, yay for you. That's great. Like, go for it. Um, instead of being like, can you believe so-and-so got this story in here? Like, that doesn't make any sense to me. Right. Well, I know those writers and I try not to be that well, it's writer. Like, it's like the old Gore Vidal line where he said, like, every time, and I'm paraphrasing, I think, but he said, every time a friend of mine succeeds, a little part of me dies. <laughs> Which is like really harsh and like it makes everybody laugh the minute they hear it. And I think the reason we all laugh is that I think there's at least part of it that's true. And yeah. you're trying to always kind of battle that part of you. You know, mm -hmm. I think we all do that. Like try to fight against the darkness. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're trying and you're because it's hard not to somehow like compare yourself or weigh yourself like, well, if I'd only done this differently, could that be me? You know, like what if I'd, you know, I don't know. Uh, the the list for the five under thirty five came out today, and I'm just like, God damn it! Who made it? Thirty eight. <laughs> yeah, right. Who made it? I don't even know. I I just I just got hip to like the long list for the National Book Award. This, oh yeah. This morning, I'm behind. But who? Yeah. Uh, do you remember who made the five under thirty five? Um. Yeah. Uh. Alex Gilvery. I'm not gonna know how to say everyone's name. That's okay. Um, By the way, these people, they're now tagged. There's like a poster of each of them on your wall. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> um, Kristen Valdez Quaid. Kirsten, sorry, shit. Kirsten Valdez Quaid. Um, I, maybe I only remember those two because I, I vaguely know them or know of them. So okay. they're the ones that stuck in my head. But I don't covet it. Like, I'm, I'm happy to be 38 in some ways. And I just know, like, I had my own path and this is my path. Right. And I feel pretty good about it. And I've, like, had some good luck and success. So yeah. I try not to be that person who kind of can't handle it. Well, I mean, yeah, and I think it too, seems to be a lot of them. <laughs> well, there are there are people who can't, and I think that uh, that's got to be a sad way to live. But I think that you know everybody's got an element of that in in themselves. I think the key is to kind of be aware of it and to like you know act, actively work against it and do things that uh, like celebrating others or yeah uh, or just like you know not paying attention willfully. <laughs> yeah, it's like a primal thing. You know, you feel it like in your brain almost chemically, like the minute those feelings start to bubble up and then you just have to like take all of your learning about being human and just like 
push it back down. Like this is not how I want to be in the world. Yeah, and I think too, like I'm a big I'm a big fan of uh, like the luck theory, and you know, I, I it's complicated. Uh, and I've spoken of this on the show before with other writers, but I really feel like there's such a strong element of luck in whether or not a person succeeds as a writer. Um, because like hard work is a given, like writing at a, at a very high quality is a given. I, I think that there's a lot of writers out there who have written really spectacular books that like nobody's ever going to read. Right. Uh, and this is kind of like a hard reality. And then you have these like wild success stories of people whose books blow up and their careers take off and they have this like huge adoring readership that sustains them in like high style for their lifetime. And, uh, <laughs> that does happen too, but it's like, how can, yeah. you, how can that possibly happen to somebody? And, and that person, how can you possibly be that person and not say, God, I got so lucky. Like, why the fuck did this happen? There's no, there's no rhyme or reason to it in my, right. in my mind that I can make sense of at the same time. I'm a big proponent in operating as if there's no such thing as luck. Like right. you have to kind of pretend that there's no such thing and that it all comes down to how hard you work because mm -hmm. otherwise, you know, if you completely give over your fate to luck, then you're just going to kind of sit there, I think, or. Yeah. It, it's, it's a, like, I but I do think at some point you kind of have to flip your thinking. Like you have to work really hard. You have to understand it might not happen for you. It could. Um, but then like once, I don't know, once your book is out there, then I don't know, luck, hard work, like feeling like it's all up to hard work will drive you insane because you'll think if only I'd done something different. And then that's not it at all. It, it is that luck thing that you're talking about. Or it's just like some people just, there's a, like a movement that's put behind them. They make all the right decisions or, and all the people around them make all the right decisions. And suddenly there it is. Or there's like this strange, weird, just like alchemy. Yeah, it's really just this thing. And if you think about it too much or you rely on it about it too much, rely on it too much, um, or you think, like, if you feel it even for a brief moment, like, oh, maybe there's a push. Maybe there's some buzz. Right. Like, you'll lose your mind because it won't last. And then you'll think, what did I do? <laughs> where, where did my buzz go? I lost my yeah. buzz. <laughs> so, but no, that's a really good point that you made. In that for a writer uh, to have a career like we all want, you know, we all want to have that career with like millions of readers and multiple books published. And, you know, that's what we want. Uh, but for that for that to happen. And let's just take the, the case of an individual book. Uh, it takes a village like it's not just like the writer did everything right. And the writer worked really hard and the writer's really talented and has worked, you know, incredibly hard to develop that talent and has suffered through all the rejections and you know, played his or her cards right. Like you take that and then it takes like the publicist, it takes the editor, yeah. it takes the people in the media. Like you have, you have friends, you know, who know people or, uh, just to like use an example, um, like you worked on this American life for, you know, people might have worked in like magazine publishing in the past and right. you never know, but there's always like a confluence of events and a confluence of people that come together to launch a book. And it's a, it's a misnomer to believe that it was just the author. Yeah. So it really I, is. And, uh, you know, with you, um, you know, I'm, I'm curious because like This American Life is a popular show uh, nationally, but it's also, I think, especially popular um, among writers. I think it's a very writerly show. There's a lot of great storytelling on it. And I think writers really respond to that and recognize it. But, it, you know, it, it's one of the few shows that I would imagine could move the needle for a, a writer or a comedian or somebody who, who you know, 
um, appears on the show. Like, is that the case? Like, did you, do you have that feeling about it? And, and do you have that feeling about any other media entity out there? Like, is, is there such a thing anymore as like a, a show, be it on the radio or television or a magazine or something that can actually truly change a writer's life? Um, I think it can for sure. I think if I, I don't know what kind of part it played for me other than how it, it influenced me as a writer and the things that it taught me that I could use later as a fiction writer. Um, and what did, what did you do? What did you do for this American life? Um, I was a, I was a producer. So the producers, it's a really small staff. It's bigger now, but when I was there, there were maybe eight people total who worked there and maybe five of us, five or six of us were producers and producers just take the story. We find stories first of all, but a lot of people pitch stories. So we might take a story that the staff has agreed is like worth looking into. We take that story and we start working with the reporter or the author and we just do everything with them that needs to get done. Like we're the expert making sure that the person we've hired is like getting all the tape they need and talking to all the right people and structuring the story in the way that it needs to get structured in order to work for the show. Um, so we do all that like kind of research side, this, then this editorial side where we work and write and edit and structure with the author and then we take everything at the end after it's gone through edits and they edit a lot. Like it's a very intensive process. And then we do all the production work on it too. So it's like kind of your hand is in every possible basket you can imagine. It seems like that's the way of the world now more and more yeah, in media so. and not necessarily yeah. to, to bad effect. I mean, it probably makes you like crazy over, you know, overtired and overworked a lot of the time, but it's nice to be able to do the whole process soup to nuts and understand it. But um, it makes me wonder like what, what comes to mind, you know, with respect to your book and with respect to your literary efforts is like, what did you learn from that particular kind of storytelling? Because storytelling on the radio is, is different than storytelling on the page, but I imagine that one informs the other. Mm-hmm. Um, I learned, I learned how to structure a story. Basically it was like the hardest thing to learn. It took years working at the show, I felt like the biggest idiot half the time because I, I couldn't figure it out or I would make these bad decisions. Like I would keep something in a story. Or I would take the story in one direction that it just shouldn't have gone in. Um, and I like learned over many years and like just doing it week after week after week, just how to tell a story. It seems so simple and it's not, it's so hard um, to kind of trust your gut, like put all the things you've learned into like this weird instinctual place um, so that you just can do it. And well, yeah, is, it, uh, is it something explicit or is it something like really intuitive? Like you're listening to somebody's tape or you're, you're reading the story <clears throat> that they pitch you and you can kind of intuit how to like illustrate it via radio because it has to be visual, you know, and like you do have to have like narrative sequencing done properly. And, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's always, it's always, it's always done kind of seamlessly on this American life, which is why it works. No, but it isn't. <laughs> So it's a it's giant, not seamless. That's yeah. the thing. What like a lot seamless. goes in. Yeah. But a lot goes into, I think it, it tricks people into thinking that telling a story is super easy. And I think it is for some people, but for most of us, it isn't like, it doesn't, it's not this like natural thing we just do. I mean, you kind of have to figure out what works. So that's, that's a big part of the job is 
is like pulling people. It's like this. I think I got hired because I had a good instinct for it. Yeah, but how, it how did, still you, how did me, you get hired? What happened? <clears throat> um, I, well, I, I was living in Portland, Maine. I was like maybe 24. Um, I just done some studying, uh, about like nonfiction writing and radio. Um, I'd always written fiction in college and I got out of college and I was like, I just want to do like documentary work. Um, and I started learning a little bit about radio and then I applied for the internship at this American life and I got it, which is your first like luck moment. Right. I've had some lucky moments and that was one of them. Um, so I got the internship and I, moved to Chicago was there for, I think it was a six month internship maybe. Um, and then I like moved to New York to try and make it in radio. I didn't succeed. (laughs) And luckily you can always start a podcast. It's an option. (laughs) Well now see, it wasn't then. (laughs) Right. I mean, I could have discovered podcasts, I guess, but I wasn't that, I wasn't that uh, innovative. Um, but around that time that I was kind of like trying to find radio jobs and working any job that wasn't radio just to make ends meet, um, I they had someone leave the show. And what I didn't realize at the time, I kind of thought I'd work at This American Life when I was like 50 because I would have finally learned enough to be able to work there. But they kind of like to hire young people and train them so that their brains are <laughs> get them before molded. They, right. Yeah. Get, them, get them before they have bad habits and like think yeah. they're normal. Right. This was, a, I mean, I don't know that that's their uh, kind of the way they do it now, but back then it was. So I didn't, I never really thought that I could get hired there, but they had someone leave and then they, they opened a, a hiring for that position and I applied and I got it. And because I had just been there as an intern and I'd done good work, you know, like I had shown potential. Um, and then I had to take that potential and actually make it into like expertise. And that took a long time and it was hard. So did, were you screwing up? Like, were you, were you, were you, yes. were you presenting, were you presenting Ira? You're like, so I, I met this guy on the, uh, where were you in Chicago? You're like, I met this guy on the L and he has a great story. And he's just like, no, we're not doing this. I know. Yeah, kind of. I mean, I think first of all, I was completely terrified to pitch stories for a while. Um, because it's like, I don't know, it's really, it's just hard. And I, there's this thing about me that I'm really not the person you expect to be in the positions that I'm in sometimes because I get a little meek. I'm not like a real, I don't know, like a, I'm not like this like reporter hound dog. And I think that you kind of have to be. Well, but, uh, no, but I want to stop you because I, what's coming to mind for me now is Joan Didion's descriptions of herself as a reporter yeah. and how her like, you know, her meekness or at least her perceived meekness and then her small physical stature actually was a, a boon to her yeah. to her ability to get people to open up because she was very unthreatening and unassuming and just was able to sort of blend like was there was there any of that at work for you what do you think um i think well i think i just yeah i think i had a particular thoughtfulness to the things that i thought about and the things that i worked on um and that was what i was able to bring um but i think in like those first moments when I was really learning, I just felt like completely, uh, like, wait, I have to cold call someone, you know, like those things would like, I would be terrified to do it. And I would like 
put it off and put it off. And it was just like, there was a way that, that I didn't really, I don't know. It was sometimes funny to me that I was doing what I was doing because I seemed so ill suited for it, but you're right. Like there were at the same time, there were things I was bringing to it um, that were valuable and like kind of, I leaned on those things while I learned the other things. And what, like and when you say you leaned on those things, you're talking about like you, you know, your sensitivity to story, your ability to, uh, you seem trustworthy, just like over the phone. Uh, I am. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you seem like the kind of person that I could trust. And you know what I found too, is that like, you know, you go into like a cold call situation or you're working with somebody to try to get the story, their story out of them. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, there are some people who are reticent, but more often than not, people want to tell their stories. Yeah. It's so weird to me. You don't want to tell yours? I mean, I'm doing this right now, right? Right. <laughs> but like, this is like a new era for me. Like, I I think I, sometimes when I would be in an interview with someone at, for This American Life, there were these moments. I mean, it, it wasn't what I thought all the time because I, I was doing my job and my job was to like get people to talk to me. But there would be this like brief moment where I would think, why on earth are you telling me this? Like, what is it about you it makes you want to spill this, but you're right. Everybody does, but there's, there's like this skeptic in me that maybe could never totally figure out why, like, like I'm talking to you now, there's like this thing that I'm doing where I'm starting to be in the world as a writer. And I'm like talking about like what I've done and how I got here. And it feels instructive in a way, like you're almost a teacher, like here's where I came from. It's a, it's this like lesson or this, um, I don't know, it makes sense to me in a way that, that it never really did when people were talking about like the most awful thing they ever did or the most embarrassing thing they ever did or or some way that they were involved in something that was like good, bad, terrible, you know, like whatever you can think of that might have been on the show. Well, yeah. It was always interesting to me. Yeah, I mean, I think like, I mean, I've thought a lot about it because there, you know, there's a real intimacy to like This American Life. There's a real intimacy, I find, to any good radio or podcast where uh, I feel like it works against loneliness in much the same way that good writing does, like a good book does. There's a, a distinct similarity. And I guess maybe it's the storytelling thing, but it's the personal feeling, you know, or the access to a person's consciousness that uh, is a great relief, you know, even if they're describing some horrible thing they did, because, you know, everyone's done some horrible thing, at least on some level. And yeah, <laughs> it's just, it's, and, you know, it's always nice to hear about somebody who did something like way worse than you've ever done. <laughs> yeah. You feel better. <laughs> yeah, about yourself. <laughs> yes. You're like, at least I'm not that asshole. So, um, so, okay. Working, uh, working for Ira Glass. I mean, I got to ask because he's a fascinating figure. He's, he's yeah. built, he's built himself into a, a Titan of media. Like what's, uh, what's he like? He's very even tempered on the air as he is even tempered off the air as he is on the air mostly <laughs> but it- um yeah i mean he he's a brilliant person and he's kind of he's really a weirdly incredible teacher too i learned a ton from him um but he's like a very exacting boss as well so it was it was like the you know you really kind of get broken down a little bit in order to get built back up um there's not a lot of not a lot of wiggle room in what they do. They do a thing and they do it really well and they don't really stray from that, what that thing is very often. Um, and you really have to learn that it takes a long time and there's like a schedule and deadlines and not a ton of necessarily patience for it. Like you just kind of have to like 
jump in and, and flounder and then like find your bearings and then work, work, work. And deliver. And deliver. Um, so it's, it's like, it, I look like the, t- that job was so hard and I gave so much of like, basically all of my twenties were spent, uh, living that job, but I got a ton out of it and I got a ton out of it mainly because of Ira and what he had to offer and the other producers too, especially Julie Snyder, who was the senior producer. Um, they just know their shit and you just watch it. And then at some point you participate in it and it's thrilling and it feels like it's not even thrilling because it's just like my fucking life, you know? And you're just like, so awesome. (laughs) You just feel so awesome because you're doing it and it's exciting and there are deadlines and you're really making something together and those are the great times, and then you fuck up, and then the, and then it's awful. Well, well <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and you talk about like uh, Ira's attention to detail it doesn't surprise me at all. Like you know, you can sort of glean um, that he's very precise, you know, just by his kind of like radio persona. But I think the more I uh, I learn about people, and you read about, uh, like I, I read a lot about artists in particular, just because that's my wheelhouse. And you you know, like when Joan Rivers died. Uh, for instance, I remember somebody saying in some article that I was reading that she was just like absolutely uh, a bear to work with when it came to the details and making sure presentation was right. And, you know, but it was never personal. It was about the work. Right. And if you, you know, if you slacked in any way on that front, she was going to call you on it and it was going to get heated. Right. And, you know, I, I get that sort of. I mean, if you if it's your name and, you know, I guess with Ira, it's his name that's on the show, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's got a responsibility to his audience and he's got to make sure that the quality is where it needs to be. And, uh, it's gotta be hard to manage that. You know, you have to be vigilant, but you also don't want to be an asshole, but sometimes you kind of need to be like in order to make sure that things stay where they need to be in order for the show to be good. You know, totally. I have a lot more, like a better perspective on it after I left, you know, because then when you're in it, it's really hard to see it for what it is. Right. But I think I always understood that, like, like there's some people who are just good managers. Um, and then there are some people who end up managing because of a thing that happened. (laughs) And like Ira is a genius. I I can say, I don't like pause to say it. Um, he had this great idea. Um, he said about making it happen. And then suddenly he was in charge of all these people who helped to make it happen. But that wasn't why he did it. Like some people want to lead and want to manage. Right. And some people just want to make a thing and they need help making it. And I think he's that. And he had to really learn um, how he was going to do that. Like what kind of boss is he going to be? Like what See, kind of mentor I, is he going to be? I want to lead and I want to manage. I just have nobody to manage. <laughs> <laughs> I've been looking for my whole life. I just want to leave. I just want to get an intern. I have a dog. (laughs) He's very well trained. Yeah. I do need an intern. I want to boss somebody around. Um, but that's fascinating. So, you know, it, it, and it seems like, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of people listening going, Oh my God, you spent your twenties on this American life working with Ira glass. Like that's a dream. It's a dream job, but it's also a hard job. And I'm sure you were tested and, um, you're no longer there. Correct. I'm no longer there. Yeah. I, why'd you leave? Um, I, you know, once I learned how to do the job, um, I mean, I never thought I would leave, first of all, because it was my dream job. But once I learned how to do the job and it became like a thing I did, um, I realized like without, you know, like without a ton of struggle, like it was just sort of, 
I got past really interesting stories and I got to make them and that's good. Um, but I realized at some point, oh, that's all I'm going to do forever now because at that point anyway, the show didn't seem like it was going to shift much. Um, now it's kind of exciting because they have this new spinoff show that's coming out. And What's, that, what's that called? I heard about that. It's called Serial. Okay. Um, and it's it sounds awesome. And I heard a clip and it, it seems like it's going to be really cool. And it's this group of producers who kind of decided to do this thing um, and to do a podcast. And I don't know, it just seems like it's going to be great. Um, but when I left, it just felt like I would do this forever then. And it would stop being such a challenge. Um, and that's good in some ways because <laughs> I won't cry as much <laughs> as I used to. Um, but also, that's kind of it. Um, and I I also, so that was a feeling I had um, alongside this feeling of, you know, when I was in college, I loved writing and I thought, oh, maybe I'll be a writer. But it seems so impractical and like nobody does that. You don't make a living at that. It's not what real people do. And at that point, I just spent like at the at the time when I left the show, I basically spent six years working with writers who wrote for a living like that was their gig. And it was hard for them and they struggled, but it was important to them that they do it. And so I had that kind of a new knowledge of the world that like you can write um, if you really want to, like you can make it happen. And then this other knowledge of like, maybe, maybe you've learned so much. I'm talking to myself, Diane. <laughs> um, maybe you've learned so much that you had now want to do something else. Like maybe you're not going to be satisfied if you just keep doing this. Was there ever a sense of like, you know what, I'm working on this show. It's a great show, but it's not my show. It's Irish show. I'm always going to be, um, you know, in his shadow. I want to get out and be my own voice, and I want to be the star of my own show. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, it's it's almost yes, exactly. Except not. I don't think I ever thought I want to be the star of my own show, but that I I'm never going to move up. Like I'm never going to move. Like nothing's ever going to change. And it really is. I think when I mentioned like having thoughts like uh, like the show is what it is. I hate saying that. I'm so sorry. No, I, I, get, um, I, I always say it. It's like, yeah. my, it's my go-to. <laughs> my husband uh, insists on saying it's what it's. It's a it's nice a, way to make it even more tedious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, I have trouble saying it like that because it seems really hard. Um but the show is the show and it is Irish show. So like once I learned a bunch, then once you learn something and you become really good at it, you start to have your own ideas and then you butt up against the ideas that are already there. So I might have, I might have started to have innovative thoughts that, you know, wanted to like do something a little different on the show or do something a little different with a story because I was maybe tired of doing it the way we were doing it or tired of this or tired of that. Um, or wanting to, you know, do a mix in a different way or something like that. And then you, you couldn't always do it. Sometimes you could, if you did it better than what Ira was thinking, like it, then that's great. You, you won something, but sometimes it was just not possible to really push something in your own direction. Well, and it makes me think though, you know, with like the way things are now in the media and with radio in particular and podcasting, like, 
Uh, and then this show, Serial, you know, the spinoff. It's like Ira's got his brand. He should be spinning off and creating like a little empire of podcasters. He should be giving – because like the point that I'm trying to make is like I feel like uh, I can empathize with being in your situation where you're on this great show. It's an incredible show. It's an incredible opportunity. But like you said, it's what it's. <laughs> and it's not going to change because why would you change a winning formula? You know, there's no reason right. to. And within the infrastructure of how that thing operates, like you just, you can't move really. So at some point though, like from a managerial standpoint, especially if he's dealing with talent um, and especially since the media landscape uh, looks like it does now, like maybe it would be wise to like start handing the ball off to people and saying, you got a good idea. Like, like, like sort of like, um, you know, uh, a version of what Jon Stewart did with, by giving Stephen Colbert, you know, Colbert a show. And then right. um, I'm forgetting uh, the, the show that's replacing Colbert, uh, The Minority Report, which is Larry. <laughs> is that what it's called? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, it's like, it's like you, almost, you almost need to do, I mean, within, I guess there's boundaries. And there's only so many hours of, of right. the day on television. But, you know, with podcasting, with radio, it's sort of limitless, especially with podcasting. And um, at some point, you know, when you have talent, like, like they're going to go, you know, yeah, and you're going to totally. lose them. You, almost, you might want to keep them in the fold. That's just my two yeah. cents. <laughs> no, it's true. And I think there are, there's definitely some of the producers who that that is exactly what's happened. Um, like uh, Alex Bloomberg started Planet Money. Um, he's been a producer there since almost the beginning of This American Life. I mean, he started Planet Money, and he kind of toggled between the two. Like, he didn't leave the show. He didn't leave This American Life, even while he was doing this other thing. Um, and Ira, like, uh, you know, made that work out because he didn't want to lose Alex. Um, and because he'd just been there so long. And so some people are going to, like, stick around and make their own thing there, like cere- like they've done with Serial. But then other people, like Jonathan Goldstein was a producer there. I actually took his job because he left to go back to Canada and he started his own show called wiretap. Um, and like some people just left to do their own thing. And I think that's good also because you know, you lose talent. Um, you've like spent a lot of time training people and then they leave. That's bad. But there's so many more people who really want that job and you have a new set of skills. Like, around the time I got hired and maybe the slow transition that the show went through during my time there was to be less, less, um, like personal essay focused, like it was in the early years and to become more news centered, um, to do news stories and current event stories in the way that this American life tells a story. Um, so when I left the people who got hired were these really ace reporters, um, who, wanted to do storytelling and to do journalism in a way that felt emotional and factual. Right. And that's great. Like it's almost stupid of me to stick around if I'm like kind of, uh, I'm not really feeling this anymore, but it's a good job. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, like it seems like it's filling a void too. Cause like long form in-depth journalism is kind of going the way of the dinosaur in a lot of venues. And so, yeah. you know, it's like you need a, people telling those stories you know in a in a you know in a way that goes beyond like a tweet or like 500 words on an internet page you know yeah so you just pulled the cord and you never thought to yourself like i'm going to take my resume and i'm going to go start my own show and do things my way you were like i want to go write short stories and publish books (laughs) yeah (laughs) um i 
Yeah, I'm just not uh, thinking back to when I was talking about like when I first started at the show and what I wasn't. I'm like not, I didn't do a lot of pieces for the show. I didn't like, I wasn't one of the voices on the show, like one of the personalities. I'm just kind of a back behind the scenes person in general. Only now is that shifting because I wrote a book, but um, I just wanted to write, like I wanted to not be right about everything. I kind of didn't want to be an expert in something. I wanted to, I wanted to have questions and not know the answers to them for a while. I wanted to get back into teaching and I wanted to write, like I wanted to go back to fiction because I felt really burnt out of from telling true stories and like having a lot of them not work out because the story didn't, didn't like move the way it needed to. Yeah. 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 And do you ever get a really hard process to like love a thing and then just realize it's not going to work. And I never have that feeling with fiction. Well, that's good. Then that's yeah. a, that's a good sign. I have that feeling. Yeah. I have that feeling with fiction all the time. <laughs> <laughs> you should do a, a couple of years as a nonfiction person, and then you'll feel really great about fiction again. Yeah, like the only thing I feel like really good about creatively is this show. Like this is the only thing that feels easy, like or at least like relatively easy. But mm-hmm. writing, it's always just like, oh man, you know. It's hard. It's hard. It's hard, and it's a, you know it's admirable. It's a, it's an admirable risk to take. You know to make that leap, like. Um, you say you moved to Oakland because of your husband's job. Like, there's some stability, but I mean, you leave like what is to most people a dream job to go publish a short story collection. Like, did anyone tell you you were crazy? Um, maybe. I think I left right before the economy went bad, so no one was like, "You're crazy!" Like in that way. Yeah. Um, that's a good job, but I, I think I got a, I got that. What? But that's a dream job. How could you leave it a lot? Yeah. Um, and I basically just think it was a dream job. Um, it was mine for a while and then it wasn't <laughs> like, and then I don't, you shouldn't stay just cause at some point you really wanted it. You and should, I have like, a new... a, I have an idea. I got to tell you, you should, <laughs> you should write a memoir and it should be called that American life <laughs> no? over it. Yes. Okay. Whatever. <laughs> Maybe, that's we good. Can, maybe we can scratch that. <laughs> no, that's good. That's good. I'll write that down. <laughs> my time, you know, my time with Ira or something. But um, so, okay, so you quit years ago. This has been a while yeah. since you've been gone. 2007. And then you started working on, and it's man v nature. You don't say man versus nature. It's man v nature. Thank you. I say man v nature, yeah. Yeah, I sort of like that. And then um, you started working on those stories immediately upon leaving or before leaving? Um, I, I went to, I went to grad school the year after. So I kind of had a year in between. I, I worked for this other company for a little while trying to see if actually I wasn't going to go to grad school and start writing. I was going to take this other turn, um, use my radio skills for this other purpose. What was the other purpose? Uh, multimedia, okay. um, like, you know, like, uh, trying to get in at like, uh, some company or the New York times or something like that. Right. That would, that needed help thinking about how to tell stories in a, like on a, on multi, on a multiple platform basis, I guess. I feel like those opportunities seemed like, I mean, maybe they've peaked, but that that did seem to be in the ether, like in recent years, like we need, we need somebody who can help us like get into video, you know, like that kind of stuff. Yeah, I I worked for this company like on a temporary basis. Like maybe I had like a six or four month stint, like a contract stint, because um, they were doing multimedia and they had the photograph and video 
part down, but they didn't have audio and they didn't have this kind of sense of narrative storytelling because photo essays work in a different way. Like the narrative works differently and video, the narrative works differently. And they wanted to bring all of these aspects together. Um, and it was like this new kind of the dawn of it. Yeah. Um, so I did that for a little while, but it, it just felt like more of the radio show. Um, so here's the thing. This is what I think the word is. It's control. Mm-hmm. You know, it's yeah. hard, it's hard to, and I, you know, it's. I think this is why a lot of us get into writing books. It's because it's the, the one storytelling medium where, for the most part, you have maximum control, if not total control. Yeah. And if you're working to tell stories for the New York Times or for This American Life, uh, the buck doesn't stop with you, and yeah. you're trying to sort of shoehorn whatever narrative you want to put out there into their little box and mm-hmm. it, could, it could be a great box you know <laughs> and it could work yeah. it could work beautifully but like creatively that's stifling to you at, yeah. at, at a certain point i think so and i i don't think i knew that about myself either for a long time and probably not even till recently i mean i knew it in some way like i knew i left and there was that had to do with it of course um but yeah thinking about I don't know, thinking about other jobs and trying to figure out where I would go and what I would do. Um, yeah, just realizing that I I want to do a thing. Like, I'm Ira 25 years ago or something. Like, I've got this other idea, and I think it's important, and I care about it, and I want to do it. And that's kind of why you have to take a leap whenever whenever that feeling comes up. You kind of have to follow it, I think. Yeah, I will still be unhappy. That's right. That's right. But it's also like, you know, I'm, I'm up against this because, uh, you know, there are life considerations, family, spouse, child. Right. You know, you make that leap and then you've got other people to answer to or other people who are affected by that leap. So, like, there are there is such a thing as, like, circumstances and context. Like, when you were making the leap, were you married? Uh, do you have children? Were you ever, like, considering any of that stuff? I wasn't married yet, but I was with the guy married eventually. Um, and we don't have kids. Okay. So we were really, and it was, it was a good time for us because he also decided to do a big leap at the same moment. <laughs> Perfect. And we both, yeah. So it's like we a double, like, it's like a double kamikaze relationship. I know. We were both like idiots who at 32 years old decided to go back to school and like start a whole new career. Um, after having good careers in other places, um, so it was it was kind of great because we neither of us had expectations of the other. We were just doing this new thing. We were doing it at the same time. Him, he was in a different field, um, and it. I think it worked for us. And like through grad school, like his program and my program, we saw like a lot of people break up. But I think because we were both kind of fucked you know like and not really didn't really know what the hell we were doing it can bring people together (laughs) i know i think it did it's a good strategy yeah (laughs) but and like it should be like it's worth mentioning too that if like one person is fucked and the other person's not like that can create tension you know that can be it's like good to be like uh unified in your fuckness yeah totally (laughs) it was it was for us and there's something sort of you know there's sort of like uh thelma and louise about it though uh obviously in a hetero relationship about like holding hands and driving off the cliff together it's kind of of romantic yeah it's nice so what is that what may i ask what your husband does what was his leap was it a creative type situation or a different kind of thing it was different like he was he went to this uh it was a um it's a program at nyu called itp and I always get the 
the name of it wrong, Interactive Telecommunications Program, which sounds like it's from the 50s, and maybe it kind of is. Um, it's like a, it's like a, a MIT media lab for more creative like people. So there's lots of artists in there and there's a lot of, um, it's like a programming, but it's more creative, I guess. Like, so he went to try and figure out how to use, uh, technology, um, in his life in an official way. Okay. He'd, he'd always been like online and being like the, he was always like managing people's like online presence. He worked for bands for a long time. Um, but he always was like innovating in these ways, like connecting like a band to YouTube when YouTube first started so that YouTube could host their videos. And he just like is good about seeing a trend or seeing something at the beginning of its life and knowing how to use it to the advantage of everybody. So this sounds perfect. So he'll, yeah. he, he's, he's going places. You can write short stories and peace. Is he in Sil- yeah. is, is he in Silicon Valley, like doing the tech thing? Is that what he's out there? He, for? So he came out here for a startup. Um, he's in San Francisco, but it's, yeah, it's a yeah, it's like a job. It's good. a jobby job. Yeah, but that's good though. One of you got to have great. One. <laughs> You're like I'm loving his job. His job is so great. <laughs> yeah, I'm working on a haiku. It's important. It would be difficult. If I mean, I think about it. So, I mean, when we were in grad school, we struggled. And when we got out of grad school, we kind of struggled because we both were struggling with like trying to I was trying to finish this book and he was trying to figure out like what direction to take things in. He'd worked at UNICEF. He'd done consulting and not every job was like consistent. So there were times when we were fucking broke. And then there were other times when like he got a check in. So it was like this really weird, bad kind of life um and we were just trying to figure out how to Stay what alive. was gonna yeah what was gonna need to happen i almost took a job at a startup at some point like there were lots of things on the table all at once but all i knew was that i wanted to just finish this book because that's why i quit my job and it's why i'd done made all these really kind of stupid decisions like just to do this thing and so i just wanted to finish it there's no there's no way you could possibly unless like you couch it in the context of like you know romance and you're coming at it from a very empathetic literary perspective but there's no way you can couch the decision to quit uh an actual job to go write fiction as anything (laughs) but like a ridiculous decision I know. <laughs> it's just like as far as like gambits go, like that is insane. And uh-huh. yet so many of us so many of us do it. We are compelled no. compelled to do it. There's like, you know, and and by the way, I, you know, books wouldn't exist where they're not such fools, you know. I know. <laughs> so might as well be the one who makes it through the hoops and, and I'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> you just I'll... raise your hand in the crowd. I'll do it. <laughs> yeah, right? It's like uh, it's like Katniss Everdeen in uh what you call it? <laughs> I will run the gauntlet. <laughs> So, okay, so when you start working on these stories, like, were you uh, initially thinking, like, I'm going to write a short story collection? Were you initially thinking, I'm going to write the Great American Novel, or did you not even know? Uh, I didn't really know. I was just trying to figure out what kind of writer to be. Um, There was this kind of long process in grad school of shedding a little bit of what I knew about, or what I, how I'd learned to write by writing at This American Life. And I had to like f- decide, well, what was what's going to be useful for me in the future, and what's going to hinder me? Like, what are the things that are just show centric that I don't need, and I don't want on the page? Like when I'm writing fiction, and you're like, how can I stop hearing Ira's voice when I'm writing, <laughs> like reciting everything that I say? Yeah, there was this 
time when I was like handed in a story, a workshop, and Ben Marcus was my workshop leader. And Ben Marcus at uh, Columbia in New York. Yeah, so I went to Columbia for grad school, and he was like, "You set up these really nice emotional moments, and then you like put this one-liner joke in there, like right after. Why do you do that?" And I was like, "What? <laughs> what do you mean? Why do I do that? That's how you write. Like, because that's kind of how you kind of how like the energy of a show, a story on the show would would go. Like, there's always this moment where like." everything kind of comes together in this like a little cheeky comment. I mean, not always, but like often it's kind of part of, it's one of the styles that you end up using a lot. And it was just like this way I learned how to write. And I had to, Ben was basically like, stop doing that. It's stupid. <laughs> and so I, <laughs> I had to stop because uh, he was right. Yeah. Um, and it was like, I kind of slowly had to learn what I do that's actual writing and what I do that's writing that I learned for the show and what's, what's the writing I actually want to do. Um, so I did that. I wrote like a ton of stories, partial stories, half stories, things I never went back to just trying to learn that and, and make sure that I knew what my voice was and what I wanted. What do you want to, what do you want to write? What, what's your, uh, what kind of stories do you want to write? Well, I decided I wanted to write like like they're a little fantastic or surreal, um, which I think is a response to facts for so long. Sure. Um, and yeah, they're like, I mean, the book itself is like it's funny to have people read it now. It, the feedback is like it's kind of apocalyptic. It's kind of brutal. Uh, there's story, like there's always kind of something about the world that I'm writing about that's impossible, but there it's possible in the story. So like all your former coworkers were like, we had no idea you felt this way. <laughs> <laughs> I, I gave the book to Ira to read and he was like, these stories are terrifying, but you're so nice. <laughs> like you have no idea. Ira. <laughs> I know. I had no idea you were like this all those years we worked so closely together. All those years I was secretly <laughs> cutting myself under the conference room table. I know. Like devastating. Um, so yeah, though, that's kind of my thing right now, but I think it like came from a particular interest in something that I was finally able to kind of follow, um, which is just like, the, the impossible and also like the impossible, the strange, and also this like take on humanity that looks at it as a wilder, a wilder uh, existence than maybe we feel like when we're sitting, you know, in our rooms, like clothed and, and rational. Like I like to look at people as a little more kind of primal than, we are in our day-to-day life. Yeah, I feel that way. Like that, I mean, I guess the, the primal thing registers, but just that like life is a lot stranger than we give it credit for in like yeah. a, you know, a moment to moment basis. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think that part of that is just survival, uh, instinct. Like you can't constantly be freaking yourself out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I mean, every once in a while, I think it's worthwhile, you know, it's worthwhile to pause and, and just be like, what are, we're on a ball of water. Like what the fuck is going on? You know, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. And, and very cool. Um, hopefully not terrifying. Maybe so, you know, sometimes, I, <laughs> I, sometimes terrifying, but I, I like to, you know, be a little bit more optimistic. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's gotta be okay. Right. We're not, we're not part of like a, uh, a matrix. <laughs> are we part of the matrix? Am I in a video game right now? <laughs> like, no. is, am I just being manipulated and, uh, toyed with by some aliens? Like I have no idea, but, um, 
Okay, so the literary and how is that for a segue, by the way? That's very. <laughs> Ira, uh, the matrix. Yeah, oh. Ira, if you're listening, that's how a segue is done right there. Um, so, you know, when it comes to actually going out and doing the business part of writing, like, you know, because it's one thing to sit at home and or, or sit in a coffee shop and write short stories, um, you know, and that part of it can be a joy. It's also a struggle. But then you take a short story collection out into the world and you try to get it published and not only published, but published by Harper. Uh, which is a feat because we all hear this as writers, uh, especially when we're coming up. It's like, you know, give me the novel. Short story collections don't sell, but yours did. So uh, how? Um, I don't know, but I, I mean, I know and I don't know at the same time. Like I was told everything you probably were told to, or most people are told in grad school, which is like practice on your stories. No one cares. No one's ever going to buy them. No one reads them like finish a novel eventually um which you know doesn't always happen sometimes people sell short stories and maybe more now i don't know if it's i don't know if it's really having a resurgence the form I just, or if it's I, just people talking about it but i think people want it to resurge including me <laughs> is research is that a proper usage but sure um the thing you're is you're a writer you can do whatever you yeah, want yeah I'm, I'm an artist i'm taking creative license but uh, you know, with the way that we, you know, read in these small bursts and our attention spans are shrinking, like the logic would seem to follow that, like, yeah, people can read a short story on their phone or on the commute yeah. to work. And, you know, is short fiction, I don't know. I don't, I don't know where the metrics are. I don't know who's measuring <laughs> such things, but I guess it's, it's, it might be more of a hope than an actual. Yeah, fact. I think it's a hope. Like, I mean, when, when I'm talking with the publishers, I mean, the, not the publisher, but like when I'm talking with the people I work with at Harper, it's not like they're like, this is going to be amazing. Like, so you're going to sell millions of copies. It's just sort of like, well, I hope for the best. Like, <laughs> like no one, like they, the things that I've learned about publishing, I mean, it's, it's a weird business and it, but it really, I do think it's full of people who really, just really love books and if they love something, they want to work with it and it kind of doesn't matter what it is. Well, yeah, and I feel like with short story collections in particular and particularly debut collections that roll out, like often mm-hmm. there's like the, the debut collection like quickly accompanied by a novel like the following year. Yeah. Um, but it seems to me like these, you know, the big publishers will pick a small handful of talented writers who have these collections and uh, they roll them out. It's like, a, yeah. it's like an opening uh, gambit. It's like this, this person is talented. By publishing this short story collection, we are acknowledging that we think this person is talented and... Um, you know, we look forward to their, their novel. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> possibly. But it's a hard, it's a, a, once again, you know, you have a, a habit, it seems in your career of landing in spots that are like mathematically unlikely like that. It's, it, it's hard to get a novel published. It's doubly hard to get a big five publisher to take your short story collection on and to debut you, yeah. um, you know, so like once again, you've, you've done it. You got to feel good. You got to feel good about that. I feel great about it. I feel like I had like good luck. I think my luck goes up and down. Like I can kind of map it out over the years. And I went through like a very deep part where it wasn't, nothing was working out for me. And then I came out of it and I feel like that's, this is me out of it. And then maybe someday I'll be back in it, but. Well, yeah, that makes sense. And and it's something that I'm glad you brought up because I don't think I've talked too much about this with people. Um, and, and that is like creative energy. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that sometimes we have this this sense, particularly when we're like measuring ourselves against our heroes, mm-hmm. that you know these people just that never never stops for them. It's just like they open the spigot, and it, it, they just keep working. And you know, yeah, there are some people, yeah. who, some writers are like that, but um, we all secretly loathe them. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, creative en- creative energy fluctuates. Is my point, and yeah. you can go. You know, it's impossible to sustain like this fever pitch of productivity that. A lot of writers kind of report uh, experiencing, you know, in the, in, the, in the flow of writing a book, like they'll have like a month or a six month stretch or, you know, some condensed period of time where they are just cranking and it's like all they can think about and they're sleeping not so much. And um, and then it's it seems logical. And yet I think sometimes we don't believe this logic that after such a period there would be a fallow period where you're kind yeah. of like sluggish <laughs> and nothing's coming and you kind of have to be willing to live through that as well without thinking there's something wrong. Right. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I hadn't really thought about it like that. Like, like out of the gate when I got this American life, like I was like, like a little engine that could, like I was just so driven and so excited and inspired to do radio um, that it like, I just like beelined for it. And, and was maybe that was partially why I was able to get it. Like I just, everything was rubbing in me and so you know i mean this is true for lots of people who don't get what they want but for whatever reason everything aligned and allowed me to do it probably partially because of just the energy i was putting behind it and same with this book like coming out of grad school and it really took through grad school like and like the two years after it for all of this to really crystallize I just like was obsessed with what I was doing. I had this question in my mind, like the stories, it's not a linked collection, but the stories really came together for me and it mattered. Like this book mattered. Like I finally had a thing I wanted to say and I felt like these stories were what I wanted to see in the world. Like I wanted it in the world. I wanted, I wanted to read these stories. If I, if I were not me, I would want to read these stories. I would wanted them. And that like, Again, like I know lots of people feel that about their work and their work and it doesn't work out for them. But for whatever reason, that luck, I was on my luck hill at the top of it and it all it came together. But I, yeah, like now I'm trying to write a novel and I don't, it, the energy is different. Like I feel like zapped a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> I feel it's like a, it's a long slug. I was going to ask too. I mean, yeah. It seems like the natural progression. You, you're working on the longer thing and, um, it's a different beast. I mean, it's the same essential process, but it requires maybe di- some different muscles and like more patience or something. Yeah, it's a totally different muscle. I think about it like that actually. Um, like, like, ugh, like when you're building that, like you're like lift, you like lift something that <laughs> uses a muscle you're not used to, and then like you can't walk normally for days. That, that's what happens when I lift anything. <laughs> <laughs> That's what, that's what writing a book is like, I think, or writing a novel. Like, it's, I've never done it before, so it just feels like, what the fuck? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and it's just like, I think some writers, I don't know, I don't know if you're one of them, they are really structured and they outline mm-hmm. and they're able to sort of preconceive the story, even if they do deviate from their preconceptions along the way, which tends to happen. But more often than not, I, I talk to writers and when they talk about writing their novels, it's an intuitive, like finger painting in the dark kind of process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, like I thought, I thought of the idea a long time ago um, while I was working on the stories, and I basically just like took a ton of notes to myself for a day and then put it aside. And so I 
I've been thinking about it for years, but not actually in writing like bits and pieces, like kind of like falling into the characters' heads, but not really ever like tackling it in, in an extended way. Um, so I have all these things I figured out about the book, but it's not a book yet. You know, like I have got maybe like a hundred pages or I mean more now, but like I'm thinking back when I really had to think about it as a thing. Um, I've got all this work and it's, I know where it's going, but it's not there yet. But I, it's like, I have, I've conceived of it. It's weird. Like I'm not usually a planner like that, but I, because so much time passed, I did conceive of it, but I also am the kind of writer who wants it to be a surprise. So I feel like even as I'm heading and reaching, like getting close to that thing, I know, like I think where the book goes I'm like all zigzagging toward it. Like I'm just like kind of taking myself all over the place. It's a little agonizing. It's terrible. Yeah. It's like so long. It <laughs> That's is. What I can't but, believe. But it's like, you just want like, the, it's like this weird feeling. It's like chasing, what is it? Chasing the dragon. I'm trying, I'm misusing drug. Heroin. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like you just like, I just want this thing out of me. And then like, that's how I always kind of feel about it. It's like, you want to give birth to the thing. It's driving you crazy, and then once it's done, you get sort of nostalgic for when it, when it was awful. It's just, yeah. it's all very emotionally confusing. It's hard. Yeah, and but, it's it's oh, go on. Well, I was going to say it's hard, but it you know it's ultimately it can be immensely satisfying. Otherwise, people wouldn't do it. I'm sure. Yeah, um, it's funny to go from stories to a novel because it's. I remember talking with one of my teachers once. Like, I really loved writing stories. I loved writing them. And I hated revising them because I love the generative process. Sure. Um, but now that I'm writing a novel, I hate the generative process. I just want to know that I can do it and for it to be done and then start revising. And I think it's because the novel's so long that you're, you're constantly terrified you're not going to get it all down. Um, and, and, that's going to elude you in some way. Yeah. I mean, I, it's, and like, I can't tell you how many writers I've spoken with who have written these great novels that are like, you know, critically acclaimed and are winning awards and you know they're they're either in the midst of like a spectacular career or they're well on their way and i talked to them and they're like yeah like up until like the day before i handed it in i thought it was completely fucked and (laughs) (laughs) i don't know whether to be comforted by that or horrified by it you know it's like wow everyone goes through that and you just have to sort of live with that uncertainty you know like (laughs) accepting it as just like a natural part of the thing um except for i guess maybe the rare few or uh, and, you know, in some careers, it seems like there's always like one book that comes more easily than others or like shoots out of a person quasi whole. But that's the yeah. rare, that's the rare exception. Yeah. So lo- looking forward, um, like, are you are you in it? Like, this is it. You found your thing. Like, you could you see yourself making another pivot and like mid course correction, like <laughs> back to graduate school at age 50? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it'd be for interior design. Oh, really? Possibly. No, not really. I don't know. Um, I mean, that's where, like, I know if I ever made a big shift that it would be <laughs> toward that for whatever reason. I just like it. Um, I do, too. I mean, not yeah. that I'm, I'm, not, I'm no good at it, but I am. I, I do have a sensitivity to physical space uh-huh. and how it makes me feel. Yeah, me too. And I find my own apartment really bad in this way. <laughs> <laughs> Like, I, I can't wait for the day that I could afford a house where, like, I walk in and I'm like, ah, I love it here. Like, it's so good, yeah. you know? And I just, uh, 
I'm not there yet, but I, yeah. and I wish I had a better like sense of how to create like the feng shui and the, uh-huh. you know, you good at that stuff? I am good at making homes, like making a place a home. That's actually, I can say without hesitation, I'm good at that. Well, maybe you can come over and do my place. Okay. (laughs) Well, if you saw where I'm sitting right now, you wouldn't want me to, because before I can do that, I also like suffer greatly in this like mass of chaos until I figure it all out. Like my kitchen table right now is just covered in shit. Like, like swa- the, swatches and stuff? Or? Just like months of mail, like magazines, books. Like there's like, I mean, there's tampons everywhere. <laughs> I mean, it's just insane because I can't focus on anything other than this, like the work I'm doing to put the book out. Yeah. And it's just like everything else is just falling apart. Well, but you know, this is a part like, especially, I, I don't even think it's just the first book. I think maybe once you get up to a certain point in your career, you have to do less media because you're famous or whatever, but that's, right. that's the rare writer. But you know, you spend all this time putting the thing together and a part of it that surprised me, um, in my publication experience was that, man, that book rolls out into the world and it's a lot of work to let pe- try to let people know about it. But it's also a work that I felt really compelled to do because you want you want to defend your uh, your work. You want you want to give it a shot. You know, like do you feel that way? I do. It's funny. I had this kind of up and down where I felt that way in the beginning, like very intensely, and I would do anything, anything, anything to to like up the chance that people would read this book because I really love it. I love it. Um, but then at some point in the process, I just like fully collapsed. I was just like, I don't care. Well, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad, <laughs> I'm, I'm, glad I'm, I'm glad I'm catching you post collapse. <laughs> yeah, now I'm back up again. But it, like, I definitely had that moment where I was like, "What?" Well, and you know, this is, this is the other thing to get back to, like, just to bring it full circle to talk about luck is that uh, you can overdo it. And I think that there's also the question of like, does it actually help? Like what, what moves the needle and you don't want to turn down an opportunity to reach readers and to, you never know which ones could be the, you know, the one that's going to cause the dominoes to fall. But I know. at some point you got to get back to your novel and just clear your head of all this uh, media stuff. Yeah. Well, and that's what we were, uh, we were, maybe I was thinking about at the beginning when we were talking about like how some people hit the jackpot when it comes to their book. And you really, you will lose your mind if you think that there's something you could have done. Um, because then you won't stop doing everything. And it, it's really all for naught. Like, there's just something you kind of have to trust about the process. And you also have to know what your book is. You know, my book is, it is not <laughs> a blockbuster novel. It is a weird story collection. It's, like, brutal and it's, like, kind of just. Dis- Dystopian slash apocalyptic slash none of those things. Like it's got a lot of things going on and it's not for everyone. Um, and if you know that and you kind of understand, like I just want the right people to love it. And I want people um, to discover it when they can, as I think, I think lots of different people can get something out of it, but I also don't, I just have to understand and be okay. And I am, with it just like being the book that it is it's my first book and i'll write more and people will love it and probably maybe not a lot of people will encounter it 
but it's okay too. And I'll do what I can, but I can't lose my mind about it. That sounds, you know what I mean? that sounds incredibly healthy. And it's, <laughs> it's a good note to end on. It's a hopeful <laughs> note. Uh, I also, I, I want to say too, um, you know, congratulations. Thank you for taking the time. Uh, you know, just to also express like some of my personal neuroses because you worked on This American Life, like the entire time I've been interviewing you, I've been uh, feeling like Ira, like the, the specter of Ira Glass is somehow hovering over me, <laughs> judging me. <laughs> no, you know, I, I actually did. I had to do, uh, I was recording a story for someone um, uh, this morning and like I was having to read like my story out loud and like I was getting directed like I would have done like 10 years ago and I I was really like I wasn't very good at it and I felt like really nervous I was like oh my god I, I suck at reading <laughs> and I don't know how to read these lines what happened to me so if you're I, fine you're fine <laughs> okay okay well I, I appreciate that and and truly congratulations on man v nature I wish you well on uh, working your way through the novel and uh, I just appreciate the time Oh, thank you very much. I really appreciate talking to you. It was really fun. All right, folks. There you go. That is Diane Cook. What a wonderful uh, time I had talking with her. Go get her short story collection. It's called Man v. Nature, available now from Harper. It is her debut. So uh, pick up a copy. Pick up multiple copies. Uh, Purchase those copies and support a young uh, author at the dawn of her publishing career. You can find uh, Diane online over on Twitter where her handle is at the DMC, at the DMC, uh, and you can uh, tweet with her. You can tweet at her. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as usual, for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget that this program has its own official app. It is free. The Other People app, it's free. You can get it on your device. Once you do that, your work is done. Uh, The most recent 50 episodes of this podcast will then be waiting for you free of charge. You can listen to them right there on your device via the app. You can download them to listen to while you're offline. You can favorite your favorite episodes. And best of all, best of all, you can sign up for a premium subscription right there within the app. That gives you access to everything. Every single episode of this podcast, uh, all 320-something at last count. So go get the app. The app itself is free. And uh, if you want to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. Tell me a story. Whatever. Don't be a troll. And you know what? Uh, speaking of uh, the whole troll Kathleen Hale story, whatever, uh, one aspect of it that I forgot to mention at the top of the show is that Kathleen Hale is the fiance of Simon Rich, who is a, a bit of a wonderkind. He's the son of Frank Rich formerly the uh, New York Times editorialist, now for uh, now writing for New York Magazine. Uh, Simon's mother, I believe, is a book editor at uh, Harper or some such thing. So a very uh, well-connected and talented media and publishing family. Simon, I want to say, like started writing for Saturday Night Live when he was like 14. I exaggerate, but it's something like that. So Kathleen is uh, his fiance and comes from a privileged background herself from what I gather. And I think that that is what is fueling a lot of the uh, debate and the uh, backlash and the heated response. It adds a layer and it makes the, maybe it makes the essay more interesting than it otherwise would be. If like uh, I wrote it, (laughs) if I wrote it, it would just be like, Oh man, what a sad, what a sad move. Lost his shit. 
went after the troll. Don't ever go after the troll, people. Leave the trolls alone. Let the trolls be trolls. They will burn themselves out. Please remember that Heinrich Schliemann died after collapsing with a uh, unidentified fever on a street in Naples and that George Gissing died of pneumonia. That's it for now. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Thanks again to Diane Cook. Go get her story collection. And I will be back again soon with uh, another conversation with another person who either writes or works in some sort of ancillary capacity in the world of publishing and uh, narrative art. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay.